We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, everybody? Welcome into a new edition of the OBR Film Breakdown. Jake and Andrew are here again to go through. Uh, we're going to go through the mailbag here. We've been sort of delaying this because the Browns made some important hires. They hired Andy Dickerson uh, yesterday, which is Wednesday, uh, February 7th. So we wanted to break that down, talk through all of that, the Scott Peters decision, how all of that timed up, what we thought about the hiring of Andy Dickerson. If you have not gone back to listen to that episode. I think it's worth your time. I think there's a lot of good insights in that one. And then we did another sort of uh, emergency podcast that aired the, this afternoon, which is tying into this Browns uh, purchasing 176 acres of land in Brook Park and what that means for the future of a Brown stadium and where this could all lead to ultimately with a location and whether they stay on the lakefront or whether they end up moving to Brook Park, there's a whole bunch of information there that we tried to go through and give some thoughts on what we believe might happen based on what we know. And I don't know, I think there's some good conversation that came out of that. So check out those two pods if you missed them. We're going to jump right into the mailbag where we have some good questions here. Uh, Andrew, I welcome you into the show, man. You can fire off the first question if you want and we can get rolling. Good to be with you again, Jake. Uh, having a, a good day here. And like you said, the Browns just keep giving us news. It's a gift after gift after gift. Now we've got them out shopping for land, doing a little house shopping out in the, the Cleveland suburbs. So there's just there's no no stop to it. But uh, it is exciting to uh, to finally get to the mailbag because we've got a bunch of good questions again. So yeah, I, I will start off here with a, a question from Eddie Schwartner. He wants to know, does the hiring of Dickerson pose a significant change in run scheme from the past few years with Callahan, and will the type of lineman they look to acquire uh, change? Yeah, th- those are those are good questions. I, I think as I look through what Seattle did last year, um, they were actually a more, um, they leaned into inside zone, sorry, outside zone more than the Browns did. So if you know anything about what Sean McVay has done in his run game approach, uh, I don't think it's a secret that they have been using that as a staple of what they developed with uh, Shanahan all the way back to the 2013 Redskins, right? So that's not a surprise, but I think we can, uh, through conversation, Andrew, I know we've talked about this. The Browns were very diverse in run game last year, but they weren't very good at any one thing. So maybe um, a difference in approach to some of the zone stuff. Seattle did run some inside zone. Uh, there's a difference in maybe potentially how they go about, you know, attacking, uh, n- maybe narrowing, guess what I'm saying is narrowing down some of the approach to get better at some certain things. Right. So uh, I don't think like the Browns are going to become this gigantic different operation out of nowhere now in terms of how they approach run game. But I do think that you will see some different wrinkles than you have seen in the past. Now, the types of linemen, I don't know that I can comment on that being any different. I thought it was clear that Callahan liked guys who could move both in the interior and exterior so that they could push the ball, you know, sort of laterally, both moving tackles and guards. I don't envision that changing because if you look at sort of how uh, at least the history of what Dickerson has done in LA and into 
and into Seattle, like he likes to get his linemen also moving, not as heavy of a, of a moving outside the hash marks team, but they, they definitely are a, you know, if you're running outside zone nearly 200 times a season, you're going to have to have guys who can move the point of attack and, and work angles, create angles, double teams to create them. So I don't know that we're going to have some giant difference here um, in types of linemen they're looking for. What I expect to be different is the volume of the concepts they run, right? I think that that has a chance to be different. So I would have to look into more of like Dickerson's comments on this sort of stuff and that's going to take some more deep diving to figure out but uh, i i just a hunch here as i'm answering your question early and understanding these new coaches is that based on what i see and how they went about run game i don't see some gigantic difference in the types of guys and i would imagine he was drawn to the the guys who were in-house in cleveland because he had other opportunities as well so uh, i think that's about as safe of an answer as i can give to that one andrew yeah i think you covered it all i i, I do kind of wonder or wish i guess that they would make some of these assistants available for a press conference at some point yeah i I doubt they will that's not really what they've done in the past but it would be fun to hear these guys kind of talk and give their philosophy i think we'll have to wait for training camp uh for that to to get some some further insight into their thinking on these things so uh but yeah i i think it's exciting I, i think the where i've kind of landed with the whole thing is it's it's just a lot of talented offensive minds and i think every one of the people the Browns hired this time around had other offers, had other opportunities. So you're not, I, I think there was a little bit when Kevin Savansky was hired, you have to go all the way back to the beginning of 2020 and remember when he was hired, it was late in the, in the cycle. He did not have first choice of a lot of uh, positions coaching wise. And I think we saw kind of some of the benefit to some new voices last year with the defense. And I'm very much expecting that same thing with the offense this year. It's a good way to put it. It's a good way to put it. And I think that sort of what I tweeted out earlier is that I don't think with the way the modern NFL is moving, you mind getting voices who have been close to Sean McVay in their offensive line and scheme development, right? Uh, Close to Shane Waldron, who is obviously a direct disciple of McVay. You feel good about that. The trust to have him be a run game coordinator before even being an offensive line coach. So those parts of it you like. So you get those two guys, their thought process. Deuce Staley brings his own thought process to the to the realm you get um tommy reese as well right who is uh, another name that is uh, relevant to running offense at two different stops at the college level and maybe introducing some more wrinkles for a run game like we're working with um jalen milrow obviously you, you introduce some different elements to quarterback run game that they could fold into play and then we'd be remiss if we didn't talk andrew about a pretty important hire uh, as as far as like backing up Andy Dickerson, which is Roy Istvan, who they who they hired to be the assistant offensive line coach today. And man, this guy has a an interesting path to the NFL. It's not like Scott Peters, who took like a decade off doing MMA stuff before getting back into NFL coaching, but this uh coaching path he took is pretty circocious. I don't know if you want to you know kind of rattle these off, but I think it's an interesting path to like I never thought that this guy's history would lead him to being with Philadelphia, but here we are. Yeah, we, we went down a little bit of a rabbit hole before we uh, jumped on to record this because I didn't realize all the schools that uh, Roy Istvan had been at, some of whom uh, I've never heard of. He was at Southern Connecticut for a long time, for a decade from 1990 to 2000, and then he was at uh, Buffalo, the the college, which we all, all know, I think, and then uh, dipped into high school for a little bit to Milford Academy, then to Rhode Island, which is a FCS school. I uh, was there for a, quite a while and then ended up at Cornell for a while. So you got a little bit of an Ivy League connection. And then for one year, he was the assistant head coach, offensive coordinator, and offensive line coach at a NAIA school down in West Palm Beach called Kaiser, uh, which was their first year playing football. And then he ended up in Philadelphia with the Eagles. So it's it's a it's a trip, man. And they're, if you ever have an hour to kill maybe you're wait, waiting in a waiting room or something go go on wikipedia and just look at the coaching history of some of these college coaches assistant coaches guys that have kind of bounced around a bunch you will learn some fun things about different schools and institutions in our country that don't really get covered by the media ever but it's all kind of out there happening but he's he's really done it all jake yeah that's like i said we were looking at it and i couldn't believe that those were the places that he'd stop by before he ultimately got to the nfl but he did work directly with multiple different regimes in Philly. So there's exposure to those offenses. There's exposure to 
his own systems that he's run over the years. So obviously I like the connection to Steichen and the difference of like RPO approach that those guys have used in Philly over a while. I mean, I certainly think that based on just this last year that Philadelphia offense became a little flawed, but you know, I think that there's at least some exposure to the right types of minds that I enjoy. So again, it's a potpourri. I think they've just pulled in a wide variety of thought processes to this whole thing. And I'm interested to see how Kevin ties in what everybody thinks, right? That has to be something he knows is his biggest challenge this offseason is, you know, tying everybody into like, let's get now. I understand you have this experience, that experience. You've been here, there. You've done this, that. But let's find a path to work together, right? That's um, that's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm really, I mean, like as far as looking forward to the 2024 NFL season, it's the one thing I can't wait to see uh, what it looks like because it has a chance to look considerably different right so all right next question um hunter anthony but i hunter i think we actually answered your question so far because you're kind of asking about thought processes with the offense right too many minds in one spot i think that you know again i think we've gone through that jay your question about is dickerson a home run higher i think we answered that on the couple pods ago where we said based on who's available and who we know to be available i think it's the right hire for what their current predicament is next question from Amman is what do you think the temp in the room would be with deshaun if we are where we are with the results and he simply forced his way out of Houston. So without the baggage is what he's asking, right? So that's, um, it's actually a pretty good question. I, I think if Deshaun didn't get suspended, played the entirety of last season, the way he played the, you know, the, the portion that he played when he came back from suspension and what we've seen this year, I don't think the current coaching staff would be here. That's that's my thought. Because there would be, like, I think it's easy to see how you can make excuses for Deshaun with like, he's got the rust issue, he's suspended, and you can see why they'd be a little more patient. I think if if Deshaun Watson had nothing in the news cycle about the personal life and he was this great quarterback in 2020 and then he shows up with the Browns and he has regressed for no reason at all. And the Browns, you know, you know, were playing him and they, they were winning seven, eight games. Like I think it's fairly obvious to me, Andrew, that he would, there would be a new, the Browns would be searching for a new coach this off season. Yeah. I, I think that the, the presumption then would definitely go to the coaching staff being responsible for all of this rather yeah. than the, the quarterback. I think, correct. I think we, we both feel like a lot of what has happened with Deshaun over the past few years has affected him on the field in a pretty direct way that we haven't really seen him get to the other side of so far. We've seen glimpses when he's really, and, and I think it's worth kind of going back. This, this question prompted me to think about how often the times since he has been in Cleveland, the times when Deshaun has played the best is when he has been hurt. He's taken a hard hit. He's gotten bounced out of bounds. He, he got roughed up in that Saints game and then kind of hit a different gear for the second half. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there's a level of just go out and play that he needs to tap into more regularly, find a way to get to without needing to to get a shoulder separated first to, to find it, right? So that's a little bit of what I've started to, to see as a commonality here is that the best games he's played, the second half of the Titans game, he had a shoulder injury. He was he was doing what he was doing. So I I think he needs to be able to find a way to play with that sort of freedom without taking a big hit, obviously. And so that does come down to a lot of the baggage and the stuff that he's kind of carrying with him that seems to be following him onto the field. You hope that he can find a way to get past that this, this next year. Yeah, well said. I definitely think that there's been the ability for the Browns to lean into this guy as damaged goods a little bit here. And I mean, it doesn't change the trade compensation, but you've been able to lean into that. And plus he got hurt. If he played the entire season this year like that. And again, maybe the Browns don't win 11 games because the the ball doesn't bounce the direction it did for them a few times. All I'm saying is the conversations could be very different. So um, good question. Tough to really totally speculate on that one, but but uh, ultimately, I, I get where you're coming from with that. Um, and man, uh, you, you're asking about changes. Would we like to see to uh, offensive tackle? Uh, I I would think we've already kind of answered that. I don't think there are any changes coming at offensive tackle, right? I don't envision something drastically changing 
with with who's in house. I think they have that in a time where their money is going to be tight. I don't think they're going to change it. Andrew, do you disagree? I just don't. I don't see. I mean, if the Jedrick Wills trade presents itself, maybe. But like again, then you're leaving yourself on an island uh, at the position if Jack Conklin's coming back from an ACL or he's older. And it's, there's a whole bunch of risk there too. But from like a this is the type of player they prefer. I don't really see a difference with this change. No, I don't think it's that they need to change for that reason. I think it's just that they want to move on from Jed Wills. And I think it's unfortunate that they're in the fifth-year option window right now where he's got a lot of money coming to him this year and a lot of it's guaranteed. But I do think that they can slide DeWand to left tackle and then pursue a trade for Jed Wills and then sign a more of a swing tackle type to back up Jones and Conklin. I think that's a, a pretty plausible direction for this offseason to go. I feel I feel like the Jed Will situation is very similar to where they were with Baker Mayfield. Like they they had to pick up the fifth year option. You understand why they did it, but they here they are in the year of that option, regretting the fact that they've guaranteed him a bunch of money. Yeah, it's possible. I think there's two people I view as tradable assets. Now, what they're ultimately worth, I don't know, but Greg Newsom and Jedrick Wills, at least, are young players. You entertain the idea of potentially moving if something of uh, if any kind of relevance presents itself, right? So next question, Matthew Steinbrink. One of my worst nightmares has been that Watson's going to get Stefanski fired. Kevin is all that is left as far as a scapegoat. We have yet to see an extension, and I think that is why. Can you tell me I'm wrong? I can't tell you I'm wrong. you're wrong until they do sign him. I thought that it was... Uh, pretty obvious based on what happened this past season that he should be extended. I thought Andrew Barry should be too. At this point, it's really good stability for them. Are they perfect? No, right? I don't think they even claim to be, but I think they've done a nice job in stabilizing this place for the most part. Obviously, I think the trade that does define them will be Deshaun and whether he figures it out. But, uh, you know, for right now, until they extend either of those guys, I have no other answer for that. I would hope that there's not an approach of like having a built-in excuse for Deshaun because that would be really uh, a crummy way to go about thought process with your organizational leadership. But I guess it's possible, Andrew, but I, I again, I can't sit here and say like, you're totally wrong about that thought process until Kevin is, is, is actually extended. And, and we haven't really talked about this because there's been a lot of other stuff going on, but it is a little surprising to me, Jake, that we're now um, over a month beyond the, the Browns playoff exit. And that hasn't gotten done. Mm-hmm. You, you, to me, it felt like the window for that was really between when the Browns left the playoffs and the Super Bowl. It, it can continue into right maybe before the combine. So you've got the rest of the month, but typically, I mean, it's also possible they could just push it to the summer because they want to focus on the team stuff. And, and if the, if the organization is all on the same page, they could wait till June and there's no hurry because the contracts don't expire until a year from now. But I was going to say, just like our kiss of death with Callahan, like the next day after we said, well, it's you know, I know. Looking less likely. I know. So, you know, be aware you could, by the time you could happen any time. Absolutely. Yeah. But I, 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 for, I'll just speak for myself. I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, me too. I, I thought it's an easy thing to do, but you, I think you made potentially the best, uh, you know, kind of conclusion there where you said they might be just saying, Hey, let's hone all of our focus in on what we're doing with player acquisition draft and all that. We don't want you spending any time thinking about this. We will get to it over the summer and we'll iron out the details. So it could be yeah. as simple as that. And they haven't exactly had any time off because they've had to hit the ground running on a, on an OC search and all the other staffing that they've been doing. So that now is going to bleed right into prep for free agency and then draft prep. And so it might be that it doesn't happen until late May, early June, because that's the next time they can take a breath. Right on. Agreed. All right. We got some more questions to get to. We're going to take a break. Uh, you're going to hear from our sponsors and then we will return from that break. And we got about five or six more questions to go. So we will be right back. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences 
So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Buying tickets to your favorite events should not be stressful, guys. Game Time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all the sports, music, comedy, and concerts near you. You can find them last minute with killer deals, and their best price guarantee helps you stop stressing over the tickets and start getting hyped for all the fun you've had. So why would you go Game Time? They have flash deals, last minute tickets. They're easy to find. Buy tickets for every kind of event in your area, specifically those Cleveland Browns. You get great images of the seats view which is awesome when you're trying to figure out how the stadium is going to look when you're trying to find that right ticket for the right price. And they have that low price guarantee and event cancellation protection, job loss protection, all of the stuff to help you protect your money, right? It's the fastest growing ticket app for a reason in the country. You get images of your seats. Like I said, before you buy them, you buy tickets in a matter of seconds and they're sent directly to your phone. All right. So you never have to go digging through your email to find something last second. It is always there. You can put them in your wallet app and make sure to have them up and ready to go. It's important to know you can download that game time app, which makes it extremely easy, very intuitive, very fast way to buy those tickets, create an account and use the promo code OBR for $20 off your first purchase. Again, terms apply. Again, create that account, redeem the code OBR for $20 off. You can do so at GameTime.co. It is not .com, it is GameTime.co, but I would suggest downloading that app, taking advantage of the $20 off coupon using the promo code OBR. Download GameTime today. Last-minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. Okay, next question up here. We've got a question on the, the mechanics of the coaching staff. So we've got new thoughts on offense. How does it work? As far as the language or learning the system, there are often discussions about the challenge of new coaches and coordinators learning a new offense, et cetera. And then discussions of how many coordinators or coaches over the years work with a certain player. Like for example, Baker Mayfield had so many with all the new hires on offense. Will they work new thought into the existing language or is there still a learning curve for players? Are are the players going to have to learn a bunch of new offensive terminology? This is from Aaron Hitchens. Well, first I think that's an, like a fantastic question to think that thought process through and like, what are they going to do with the verbiage? I, I would imagine if Kevin is going to be continued to be heavily involved to the level, we think he's still calling plays that they would tie as much in to the current verbiage they have as possible. Right. It's like, I don't think there's some gigantic new runs or sorry, a gigantic new like pass concept they've never heard of or run concept they've never heard of. The Browns, if you look at the diversity and what they do, they 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 ran a significant amount of different things. So uh, I just think that my guess would be to simplify and keep things in order. They would continue to have the verbiage of things the same. Wrinkles, changes, audibles, stuff like that. They could get into having some different thought process behind that, but I don't think that they're going to just rewrite the the way the playbook is communicated. Uh, in my opinion, but they're going to add some things and there'll be new names and adjustments, but like, it's different where you're going from Joe Woods to, you know, Schwartz, right. That's, that's just a completely different thing. And now if like, again, if Kevin said, Hey, I'm hiring whoever I'm hiring Ken Dorsey and it's his job, he's the OC he's calling plays. I'm overseeing it. Then I think it's possible, but 
I think with Kevin's continued involvement that we expect, I, I don't an, anticipate some massive overhaul in the, in the sort of verbiage of the way this stuff's communicated, Andrew. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. It makes sense to me. You've got the same head coach. He's going to want things run a certain way. But I do think it's interesting when everybody has been replaced. Is it easier? The question is, is it easier for Kevin Stefanski to learn Ken Dorsey's offense? Or is it easier for Kevin Stefanski to teach? So, Or, or are they going to start fresh page one of a new document and build a new playbook? I, I think it's a, a very interesting you you really fingers crossed, Jake, that somebody's able to get a little bit of access and can write an article by training camp about what they're what they're up to over the next few months because we really thought this was going to happen last year. I remember we had a lot of conversations about how the, how much redoing the playbook they're going to do. This is the year where obviously the rubber's meeting the road. Yeah, I think that would be a really good question for a presser. Like, you're not as a coach, you wouldn't be giving away anything. You wouldn't say too much you know you're not you're not saying specifics about a play you know call or design just when you bring in so many new minds are you teaching them what the players already know or are you rewriting it and everybody's starting from scratch so uh, an idea for a question at a presser if anyone is listening to this and wants to uh, wants to go down that path um all right next question if dorsey's in the booth as we expect uh, won't they need someone on the sideline with the quarterback? I know in theory anyone could do it, but no quarterback coach title has been given yet. I'm sure there's room for an addition. Uh, that comes from Matt DRC. That is a great question. Now, um, I have not gone back to check if Buffalo had – they did. They had Joe Brady, so I'm an idiot. I don't, I don't know if Brady was on the sideline or not. He was. Okay, so that is obviously a, bi- a big development, right? So maybe, maybe the sign – without a quarterback coach in place, it tells us that maybe I don't want, I would prefer Dorsey to be up top, but maybe this tells us he won't, right? I don't have any other inclination. I would like to think that there would be communication communication directly. I guess you could keep Tommy Reese down because he's well-versed in talking to his quarterbacks, but like you don't normally see a tight end coach, even though he is the pass game specialist, right? So maybe, maybe that ties into their belief and like, his understanding of what they'll want to do in the passing game. A lot to be determined there. That's a really good question. And another one that again, I think would be a fair question at a press conference because they have not directly hired a quarterback coach. So it would be funny to watch the Browns go from too many people on the sideline to all of a sudden having nobody on the sideline, to talk to the quarterback or something like that. Right. There is a, I don't have the Brown staff in front of me. They have an assistant quarterback coach, Ashton um, Grant. So yeah, maybe Ashton Grant becomes a guy down on the sideline now multiple years and the organization can can do that sort of role. But uh, I, I again, one of the more fascinating things for me is if Ken Dorsey is going to be up top or if he's going to be on the sideline, uh, just kind of seeing where the important voices are going to be located each week. What would you say the main reason for not hiring somebody for that position is? Is it is it really just not having too many cooks in the kitchen, so to speak? Potentially, yeah. Yeah, that could be. I mean, I don't know what other reason it could be you you would you would just say i i would prefer dorsey is the singular voice that is helping him guiding him teaching him right um but i i don't (laughs) i would prefer there is somebody else involved and i would like hey ken do you have somebody you know like is there somebody he's worked closely with from previous stops that Mm -hmm. he would prefer worked with him too i i would I just, again, me personally, I like as many voices as you can have in those rooms as possible. So I would want to fill that void. I, re- I really would. So maybe Agreed. the Browns are yet to make that. Maybe they, they make Ashton Grant that guy. That makes plenty of sense. And they bring in somebody new for that assistant title or whatever right. to fill out the staff. That that could be the case. I don't know where the Browns stand on their belief in the young man, but like, I want to fill the. I just kind of want to be on record with this, and I know I think you feel the same way too. I would like them to fill that role. I don't want it to just be a vacant role. And I think they had the opportunity to put Ken Dorsey as the title of that role, and they didn't do it. So that leads me to think that there could still be some explore, exploration about filling it with somebody else or if they have an internal candidate good enough for it, right? I think something you and I have grown to understand about them is they're not sharing every detail of what they're doing with this staff. So... Uh, maybe that'll be something that pops up in the coming days. One thing to keep an eye on there, Brian Johnson, uh, last year's offensive coordinator in Philadelphia, who interviewed with the Browns, just got hired by the Commanders mm-hmm. for like a pass game coordinator type role. Uh, so 
if they were hoping for him to take the quarterback coach job, then maybe there's movement towards another solution, kind of like what happened with Kellen Moore was hired in Philly the next day. They moved on Ken Dorsey. Maybe by the end of the week, we have a little bit more clarity here because they have to make a different selection. Yeah, I like that. Good point. All right, let's do the next one. All right, next question. Uh, on both the offensive and defensive sides of the ball, how many stock plays would go onto the play sheet for a game versus new or opponent-specific stuff that gets cooked up? That's another one from Aaron Hitchens. Well, I think by by stock plays, you mean like universal concepts that you're using every week no matter what? I think right, like yeah, the, the staples. There's quite a few, man. I mean, you have you have stuff in your playbook that you know is going to be down and distance specific. You have stuff in your playbook that you know is going to be uh, coverage beater specific. You know that in second and mediums, they like to play cover four. Or they like to play uh, three poach or whatever. Like there's a bunch of different types of coverages that teams will play given down a distance. So the core staples will be in there. I would imagine, though, weekly you go into it with around 20 game plan specific plays. You can't go crazy uh, because that's just too much to learn in the amount of time they get to spend with the players these days. But um, 20 or so plays game plan specific to a team, I think, are uh, a fair number. Right. I, I think that's it. But your your core staples like stock plays are they're They're there. They're always there and they make a majority of who you are. But you you have again, I, I'm putting a rough number on that, like 20 or so, uh, Andrew, that I think that fit the bill there. I I don't have anything to add. You would you would definitely know better than me on that stuff. I I don't. I think that that area of football continues to be one area that is just a black box because nobody wants to give away their competitive advantage. I know there are some people on on Twitter, and you can you can kind of get like playbooks uh, from previous seasons. But I, as far as like what goes into the the recipe of making that call sheet, I haven't really heard too much information out there. Yeah, I mean, there's like. If you look at those sheets, they have them broken down. And I don't think I'm telling you anything that you don't know, or maybe other people don't know, or maybe you do. Like they're color coded for situational football. Here's our opening script. Like when I used to make one a long time ago, I was like, here's our 10 to 15 play opening script on one side, right? Next set of stuff you have is your two minute drill, your four minute drill, things laid out with the calls, right? So you have like, you know, when you're in two minute, four minute, whatever you have names, like it's a one name thing you're communicating out there. Like Buster gives everybody a play understanding and you're two minute. Everybody knows that the offensive line is in a singular protection unless the quarterback quick checks it. So Buster tells them this is the concept or whatever the name Ringo you could, there's so many that's usually one side on the other side, you have all of your plays listed out by when you prefer to call them runs in sure. And first and 10 passes first and 10, like it's it's just laid out based on situational stuff. So I, if I'm in between series, I'm looking at what's my next play going to be. I'm looking at my first and ten script for which ones I know are good against first and ten tendencies. Right? If I need third and short, here's my pull list. If I have trick plays in a section, I know a reminder what my trick plays are. There's probably a section for game plan beaters. Right? When they know that this is a you have these 15 to 20 plays we put in for the Patriots this week. These are the plays that I can go to whenever I want to. Right? So just think about breaking down everything. And then you obviously have like the high red zone plays, low red zone plays, every situation you're, you're putting that together. And it's not like the coach is looking at the sheet and calling the direct thing that's in front of them listed on the sheet. There's usually like, Hey, you got to match up the personnel. You got to match up the strength of the, of the call. You're not going to put trips into the boundary very often, like little things like that. You just put it in a way that it's there. It reminds you, it keeps you fresh on what you have and what you worked on this week. And um, like, it's just as, as broken down in details. It can because the putting together of that sheet is usually something the play caller does. And it gives you a mental check days before the game of going through it. There was always these stories of Sean McVay, sorry, excuse me, Sean Payton and Drew Brees doing that together and like rattling it off, like going through a checklist together of these are our things and spending like an hour uh, the day before the game, the walkthrough after everyone's done, just mentally going through the process, envisioning everything together. And like, that's what you're trying to do as a play call. I'm sure I'm hoping that Deshaun is doing the same stuff with Kevin or whoever's calling plays this year. But generally the thought process is we want to be so on such the same page. We go through all this stuff together. We know it like the back of our hands so that when it becomes third and seven in the meat portion portion of a game, I know Kevin probably likes, you know, three by one spacing here. I know Kevin probably likes 
divide or whatever play concept. Like you know that so that you're thinking ahead and you're on a similar page. So those play sheets are broken down that way. As far as my understanding, there could be some new wrinkle that I don't know, you know, that the guys are doing, but that's my knowledge of it, Andrew. So there you go. All right. The next question is uh, from Craig Bate. Uh, Schwartz's tenure as a defensive coordinator is known for simplistic coverage schemes, maybe to their detriment sometimes. How do they fix this without adding another voice to the room? He says it's his single biggest concern about the Browns outside of Watson's development. I am a little concerned about this too, because, uh, you know, there used to be these teams and thought processes, Andrew, of like, we played this coverage and it just worked, right? We were simple. We did this and teams couldn't beat us. Like, I think the modern quarterback is seeing more at a young age that I don't know that you can live that way anymore. Like as a core identifier, like go to a high school game, watch what these teams are doing in spread and watch what the defenses are doing to stop them. Now that stuff used to be in like advanced college levels. Now it's in, in everywhere. Like all I'm saying is like a quarterback knowing what cover six is by the time they got to late college, you know, that's normal. Now they know cover six in high school, right? Like these kids are learning more at a younger age. They're experiencing more. They've seen it. They've lived it. So it's not like, oh, they're throwing some wrinkle at me. I don't know. I think diversity in your coverage approach is the modern method of choice. So I hope the Browns expand, diversify, and work on deceiving quarterbacks a little bit more if they can. Like, crossing up man zone identifiers like a, a great thing that i saw andrew and this isn't new but it's just something that's been out there is like that fourth down against the lions uh in the lions 49ers game the lions put a running back outside and what you usually do when you align your running back wide is you try to identify whether they're playing man or zone if a linebacker goes with him hey i know it's probably man to man if the corner just bumps out they're probably fitting that player now is a part of the number one receiver it's a zone well the the 49ers knowing this tendency said hey we're going to send a corner out and make it look like zone and then we're going to bring him back in when they motion him in but actually play man i think it was actually the flip side of that they sent a linebacker out originally but when he motioned back in that so that told um golf that he thought it was going to be man coverage but then the 49ers were in i think I think they're in a two shell and sat in cover two and it screwed everything up. So like what I'm getting at with that example, and there are other examples of this, like it was a big thing. I actually wrote about this when the Browns caught, um, caught the Titans earlier this year. Remember that Jerome Ford touchdown against uh, Alice each year uh, on the left sideline. Um, the Titans were actually saying, we're still going to play zone. Even with the linebacker outside, you play man to man on him. We're going to play zone everywhere else, which is interesting. It's a fun theory, but I just think that like confusing quarterbacks by diversity, not knowing what to expect. You know, it's it's fun every now and again to like, hey, we're going to play man coverage and you can't beat us. But I think that you need to be diverse. That's the thing I lean into more than anything is can you handle diversity? Now, the question is, can these guys on the roster who have failed to be as uh, communicative as possible and handle diversity, can they ever get to that point? Because we've seen over and over again through Woods and now Schwartz that there are miscommunications that happen a little too often with these guys. So. That's a big lingering question. Do you have the football IQ in your secondary to handle that sort of thing? Right. That's something they have to weigh. It's a great question. A great answer by you. It's a, it's one of the, probably the biggest question facing the defense going into next year. And we haven't heard any news about defensive staff changes other than Jacques Césaire coming on as the defensive line coach. But we talked at other times about somebody, anybody, Mike Rabel, whomever, joining as a as a defensive sort of specialist or whatever senior defensive analyst whatever the title you want it to be but just to get a maybe a, a little bit of a different perspective on on how to attack teams with a little bit more disguise uh so, so far none of that has happened so it does feel a little bit like last year on the offense where the lack of movement indicates that they're going to run it back and we'll see where we are but i i think it it felt foolish for the browns to have the plan that they had against the texans It'll feel even more foolish if they spend the next nine months not changing any of it. All right, next up, uh, we have a question from Matthew Steinbrink. Can you rank who you guys think Haslam trusts the most between Kevin, A.B., DePodesta, and has it changed recently? He says, personally, I think it has shifted to Depot over time. What do you think, Jake? 
I think the people in the media would have us believe that. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff out there about Deep Podesta guiding. You know, I'm not talking about everybody doing this. I hate lumping all the media together, but there are some serious mouthpieces in the media who carry this weight and um, will like to put everything on Deep Podesta. I would imagine Deep Podesta has a strong voice. I would probably rank like, I think you can argue some different stuff here, but I would have to think I would lean A, B, Deep Podesta, then Kevin. I, but it's hard to answer this question with certainty. You know, I, I mean, I wouldn't argue somebody thinking or believing Deep Podesta has the most heard voice in the industry. But I also wouldn't doubt that, like, I guess what I'm saying, Andrew, is like the Kevin and Andrew Barry relationships probably really strong, I would hope. And then Deep Podesta talking to Haslam all the time is probably pretty strong. And I think that AB and Deep Podesta try to play the middleman between both of those guys. Like, I don't imagine there's a huge line of communication between Kevin and the owner. Like they're not going to talk that often. So I think that there's like four, like four people involved. And then if I see Deep Podesta and Andrew Barry kind of like being the guys leading from both sides of that conversation and coming to middle ground, sort of like thought process, understanding stuff like that. That's how I would envision it. Uh, because again, like Deep Podesta is not boots on the ground every day doing the stuff Kevin and Andrew Barry are. He's like, overseeing big portions of things and i don't imagine jimmy's trying to bug andrew and kevin all the time so like if some decision is made or they're doing something where jimmy's in the booth and he's like why do we keep throwing the damn ball to elijah moore so i mean anything could be something as small as that or like hey deshaun watson's available paul do you know how like the guys feel about him like i think that, that where he goes is probably paul to answer some of those big picture questions or small questions. And then deep Podesta kind of filters them down. That's how I would envision it. And I don't know. I don't think that's awful. I just think that that's the way in which it goes. But again, that's so much conjecture on my part. I'm not sure what you think. I, I kind of agree with what you just said. I, I think that Haslam has never struck me as a guy who really trusts anybody. His overall MO from what I understand is that typically he has the opinion of the last person he talked to. He, he tends to be a little bit of a cipher in that way. So, well, the question is, Andrew, from the from the guy that we learned was going around the building and asking different coaches perspectives, sure. and like, do you think he's done doing that? Do you think that's been removed? That's Not, because we haven't heard anything like that yeah. when he was the worst version of the meddling owner, and they've had four years of stability here in terms of these three core guys and Kevin. Um, I'm sorry, and you know, with with Jimmy. So like. Yeah, I, I guess it's whether you believe that it's like he's learned his lesson and is staying out of the way. No, kind of thing. I do not believe that. But I yeah. do think that if the relationships between Andrew Barry, Paul D. Podesta, and Kevin Stefanski are strong enough, that can mitigate some of an owner who wants to kind of meddle in a bunch of different areas, right? Yeah. We, we've all had the experience of you have a boss that wants to kind of stick their fingers in a few different areas and, and, kind of look over your shoulder, but if you and your coworkers have a good understanding, open lines of communication, you can mitigate some of the effects of that. So I think that's that's more what I see happening here is that because the guys running it are in lockstep and not trying to stab each other in the back, it has stabilized. But if Andrew Barry wanted to all of a sudden start stirring things up against Kevin Stefanski, for example, I think the owner would still be receptive to that. Jimmy Haslam is is old enough that he's not going to change. The expression, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, exists for a reason. And I don't think that who he is as a person is going to change. It's more about finding people that can work with that limitation. Yeah, I think any varied amount of re like reactions, responses to that question are fair. I, I don't think, I believe that Haslam isn't as bad as he was, but to your point, like he probably still has some habits that are that are there. Hopefully, like I said, that they just have a better chain of command now for filtering the manic thoughts of Jimmy Haslam as he's uh, as he's upset. Because, you know, you remember, like I do, after that 2022 finale with Pittsburgh on the road, like there's that photo of him walking in front of like A.B. and and uh, and Kevin looking pissed off. So, I mean, it's not like he's not around. He's not distanced from this whole thing. He's still, you know, he's still there. He's still like greeting players in the locker room and stuff like that. So. Uh, yeah, it's not not disappeared per se. All right, next question is from Joey J. Is um, for the mailbag. You guys have three 
free agents. You can pick three of them, realistic options in uh, <laughs> in uh, you know parentheses there to add this offseason. Who would they be? Uh, I think that the best way we can frame this, Andrews, we have to say they're going to do the simple um, rust uh, con- contract restructures, which are going to put them around like eighty million. So that's kind of what you're toying with. You'd have to maybe take out the um, the draft cap out of that. So maybe you're looking at like seventy two million from that. I don't know. I mean, plenty of money, first round picks, plenty so, of money. Yeah, they have some money to toy with here. We do know that they like to roll over money, so that's not a secret. But uh, I think that it's fair to think that they have forty to fifty million to play with here if they want to go sign somebody serious. So if you could pick three guys in that price range, who are you chasing? Well, the big the the first one is what happens at pass rusher opposite Miles Garrett, and I think it's an area where you could maybe find a little bit of a bargain because there are so many of them this year. And so not that they're ever going to be cheap, cheap, right? We know that that is not how it works. But if you look at PFF's rankings, for example, there are a bunch of them in their top 100. Zadarius Smith comes in at 42. I think a return for him is not out of the question. But the name the name that I really like here as a, as a fit that maybe would be a little bit below market is be, is just because of the fluctuation in his early career is Chase Young. Um, and I think if you could get him on a shorter term deal that would that would put him around twelve to fifteen million dollars a year, I think that would be a really fun bookend with Miles Garrett and could potentially really amp up even to another level. Because I think I think we both felt like Zadarius was was a real on and off player this year. There were games where he would really take over and there were other games where he was absent at times. He graded out really well for the year, had a great season, but um I I think especially with with him getting into his 30s now, the concern about injury is there. So I'll I'll take Chase Young as my first uh, free agent signing. I'll send it back to you for one. Yeah, I'm going to stay with the edge group too. I think I'm interested in Bryce Huff. If Bryce Huff is going to be something around the 12 to 15 range, I know looking at PFF's projections, they have him actually as like three years, 50 million, um, which is kind of going to range out the 16.6 range. I, I mean, that's a little rich for my blood, but I, at the same time, he's under, he's going to play 20 at 26 this year. So you would have a young player to keep kind of building with. And, you know, if they see him as a fit in the same sort of role as Zadarius in his, uh, you know, uh, interested in Cleveland, I think that there's enough skill there. There's a, a really promising array of moves to get to the quarterback. And I, and I think he's, um, just kind of just hitting the surface of how good he can be as a player. The win rate stuff is really promising. So again, this is just playing a fantasy world here. So I would say getting Bryce Huff on something like three years, 15 per is um, a deal that I could stomach, you know, as a long-term, not long-term NFL long-term three years of a player there. Yeah. I like that. I like, those are the kind of the two names at edge that I would get excited about. Um, I think the other one is uh, Jonathan Grenard from, Houston, but I don't know if he's going to hit the open market. They have every reason to want to re-sign him, but he would also be interesting to me in that situation. Uh, all right, so next I'm going to head over to wide receiver, and I'm assuming you're going to tell me that T. Higgins and Michael Pittman are getting franchise tagged? Well, from this world of like, I don't know, you put realistic in quotations. I don't know. I mean, I guess we can remove those guys. Yeah, they're they're very likely, but you know, mm-hmm. I, hate, I hate playing the, well, this guy's not going to be available. Then he is all of a sudden, but yeah, we right. can... We can say that. Well, all right. So I'll just say say it this way. If T Higgins somehow hit the open market, I would pay him whatever he wanted. I think that solves so many of the Browns offensive problems to have a one, two of him and Amari Cooper. I don't Mm -hmm. feel quite as strongly about Michael Pittman. I do like Michael Pittman, but very different skill sets. Um, So if if we're taking those two guys off the market, then I think I'm probably overspending on Gabe Davis, maybe as a sort of deep threat wide receiver to pair with Amari. And you hope that, you could find something there. I I don't, I don't know. I don't, the, the wide receiver free agent class is interesting. I don't love Hollywood Brown. I don't love Calvin Ridley, Darnell Mooney. I mean, I, you know, that's not doing anything for me. So I, I think I'm probably o- overindulging in some Gabe Davis. Yeah. If those two are out too, I, I would obviously look for somebody field stretch wise. I probably, Hollywood Brown is an interesting name. Um, you could probably get him for like a one or two year deal in the, 12 to 13 range 
So as far as having a varied approach to who's in your room and a guy who can obviously win vertically down the field, but has a little more nuance to his game. I have a hard time seeing the Cardinals let him go just because like they're, you know, planning on trying to draft Marvin Harrison, but that is never a guarantee. So I think having Kyler with, with somebody like Hollywood, and then if they end up taking uh, Marvin Harrison or Roma Dunze or, or like Malik neighbors or whatever uh, that they get with four, or they slide back a little bit that you, you like that pairing. So if he is available though, and that's the range to get him, he's familiar with this division, obviously. So uh, I would like to add him in a ideal sort of standard setup there. Yeah, those are those are I I think it's kind of choose your flavor at wide receiver, but I think they're definitely going to make a splash there. There's no doubt about that. So then for the third one, I'm kind of torn between two options. One thing that I will say is that there are a lot of really exciting um, interior defenders mm-hmm. from the top of the market guys like Chris Jones and Justin Matabike, who we know the Browns liked all the way back in the draft way back when. But even down, like, I, I've always liked Grover Stewart. I, the Browns, we know the Browns put a, a claim in on Tierra Tart. So, like, adding another difference-making defensive tackle would be cool with me. But if I'm running the ship, I'm actually going a different way, and I'm finding a market for Greg Newsom, and then I'm signing Kenny Moore as a legit run, run force run defender slot corner because I think – it just really fits with the attitude of this defense a lot better than the Greg Newsom experiment. And I think they can get something for Newsom because there's not enough guys that can do what he can do outside in terms of athletic ability. And, and when he turns it on, he can be a really good player. So I, I think there's a, there's a, there's a market for him. You can spin a pick out of that and then, and then go get a slot corner and end up paying Kenny more or less than you're going to be paying Greg Newsom at the end of his rookie contract. Yeah, that's a good one. For the sake of being different, I do love that approach to trying to like reduce the exposure to cap to that spot. So uh, interested in that. I will say on the market, I generally like trying to get linebackers because you can you can get them cheaper. But it's also tricky as the cap goes up. You're like a little scared of these numbers. But Aziz Alshair, who I mentioned earlier, uh, as a Mike linebacker, a run game defender, you know, you, you obviously are going to. I mean, I guess the Browns could flirt with Anthony Walker again, but I think it's kind of it's kind of time. I mean, Taki Taki's around, but I think you're looking for something maybe a little bit better. I think Alshayer is interesting to me. He's 26 and a half right now. We'll play at 27. So like some two or three year deal around five million a year. I think I could stomach that for, a, you know, a, a rundown linebacker. You know, it obviously seems like JOK is going to be their third down guy in the future based on what we know so you're not trying to expose too much cap to this position but i do like the idea if it's not him maybe it's like trying something on a rehabilitation of devin white for like one year and cheap sort of thing uh there, there are some options that you can go with there but i'm drawn to the idea of a linebacker in free agency and i don't want to spend too much money there's also like blake cashman who had a pretty good year so i'm just going to keep naming every linebacker until i'm done uh, talking here, but there's like a lot in that range. Drew Tranquil's another one who's having a nice year in Kansas City who could ultimately hit the market. Um, you know, if the Browns want to keep going back to the free agency well of Kansas City, uh, they can do that. So, um, that, but that's, I, I think we're sort of speaking the same language, which you're looking for bargain at nickel and I'm looking for bargain at linebacker because those are two positions that you maybe don't want to draft, but you can find on the market for a decent number that doesn't cripple your cap. Right. So I think we're on the same path there. That's it. But yeah. We agree. T. Higgins would be the dream. I just uh, think there's about seven or eight other franchises saying the same thing, and um, the Bengals are probably thinking about how they maximize his value and letting him walk, just like just letting him walk with nothing other than getting a comp pick back if they don't get active themselves in free agency would be uh, a really big mistake. Not to say the Bengals can't make it, but th- that would be a really big mistake. All right, last question comes from Aaron Hitchens. Aaron sent over quite a few. Um I know that there have been quite a few as well from Steinbrink, so we appreciate you guys who send over multiple questions. I'm of the belief that the MVP award is broken. Uh, Call me a hater, but the automatic assumption that Lamar Jackson is the MVP is laughable. He does add the caveat that, yes, I hate the Ravens, but to have a race race that in uh, in Week 15 is a toss-up to Lamar's award in two weeks makes as much sense as drafting Corey Coleman. Though Canadian, I'm not much of a a CFL fan. That said, their award is most outstanding player. That criteria be should be applied to the NFL. 
Uh, where are the 49ers without McCaffrey, the Dolphins without Tyreek, the Browns without Miles, hell, the Chiefs without Kelsey. All of that said, who do you believe is the NFL's most outstanding player this season? I think um, I'll say before I toss it to you to answer this, this is a really weird year for MVP where there isn't like a clear, decisive front runner where I feel like most years have that. So I think if you're like a hater of the MVP stock award, who you give to somebody with a story behind it, this is a year to have that opinion. But um, I, I also won't find myself just like being really mad if Lamar wins it. Cause I thought he had a really good year too. So, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in between on all that stuff, but yeah, I think, I mean, the Browns have, or sorry, the uh, NFL has some, they have the like, most outstanding player, right? For the offense and defense, or am I losing my mind? Do they well, not have that award player of the year? Yeah, that's right. So they kind of frame it that way. Yeah. So he's asking, we make this award the most outstanding player for the entirety of the NFL, who are you selecting? I mean, first of all, like the whole semantic thing about valuable versus outstanding, I don't find particularly convincing. I think the reason you got to pick a quarterback is because if you redrafted the league, you'd pick quarterbacks one through what, 10? I mean, how soon is Justin Jefferson going? Yeah, maybe maybe I mean, eighth, something like that. Yeah, like probably. Quarterbacks are going to be the five to ten highest paid players. It just it's a it's a quarterback driven league that speaks more to their scarcity than the fact that we're using the word valuable instead of outstanding. And I agree that it's easy to want to be underwhelmed by what the Ravens did because of being a Cleveland Browns fan, but I do think Lamar Jackson deserves to win an MVP. I think the reason that this conversation clarifies down the back half of the year is that that's when you need to be playing your best football. And the Ravens really were playing their best football from what the beginning of December, all the way through the conference championship game. So they deserve credit for that. They were putting the torch to people to, to good football teams pretty routinely. I don't have any problem with the Brown, the Ravens going to San Francisco, dominating the 49ers on Christmas night. And that sewing up an MVP for Lamar Jackson. That I, that system makes sense to me. I'm fine with that. Uh, but to answer the question, you're talking about most outstanding player. Then I think it's probably either what Tyreek Hill did in Miami or what Christian McCaffrey did with the 49ers. But you know, then I think you can also make an, an argument for defensive players more readily. I I, I think that the the trickiest thing here is that every year the gap between the best player and the second best player at any position changes. Mm -hmm. And I would say probably this year, the the gap between one and two at any position was probably the gap between Christian McCaffrey and the second best running back, just because he's so impactful. But part of that also is the scheme that he's in shows off so much of what he can do. So now do you downgrade him as an outstanding player because the scheme showcases him better than, for example, another scheme for another player somewhere else that I can't even think of. I, I don't know. I, I mean, we've talked about this a bunch over the back half of the season. I tend to find these discussions a little bit like I, I think everybody's got it's like going to an ice cream parlor and criticizing what other people get. Like everybody's got their flavor, man. Just let them eat. You're about to see those flavors tested tonight's uh, award ceremony. It's going to get spicy there, especially if Miles win, and we know the hate that there is across the league for that decision. But anyway, I'm with you. I don't have as long an answer, which I thought your answer is good. I mean, it speaks to like a general indifference about this sort of thing. I think it's just like you see it, you know it sort of thing. And I think the ice cream analogy is uh, pretty fair. It's always a thing I've never liked is when you I may, I've probably referenced it on this pod. I've done so many of these damn shows now, but like when you get something to eat and you're eating it and someone's like, Oh, that's disgusting. Yeah. Well, Hey, the good thing is you're not eating it. Right. So, you right. know, there's that. Yep. Um, Don't yuck somebody else's yum. That's what they say. That's what they say. And I think I agree with your yum, which is Christian McCaffrey too. I think the difference there was pretty wide. And uh, when he wasn't in games, you could see what it did to that offense. And I think he's a special player and he's at the peak of his powers and probably will put those powers on display in the Super Bowl. So if that was the case, probably taking that route. But again, Lamar, I'd have no problem with calling like Lamar the most outstanding player or something like that either. Like he's he had a, he had a great year. Absolutely. Um, and again, in a year that I didn't think that there was a definitive winner, there was no like Mahomes type MVP season that we've seen several different times or some of the ones we've seen from Brady over the years. So uh, it was pretty wide open pretty wide open anyway thanks for all the questions guys great questions hopefully we answer them to your satisfaction 
um, you know, keep those questions coming this offseason. We can get a little more specific about draft picks or free agents if you would like us to uh, before we hit those like official shows. So fire those questions over and some really good ones about like offensive play calling an organization and all of that, too. So uh, I commend you guys on those questions. So otherwise, for now, we're going to end this podcast. We will check back in with you guys uh, tomorrow. We'll, we'll be here for another show. Uh, anything that breaks, we're going to try to get a podcast up. If you failed to listen to the one on the stadium conversation, uh, I would urge you to go check that out. I thought that was a fun pod, and I think there's a lot of uh, interesting information floating out there as the Browns are getting more serious about potentially relocating their stadium. So check that one out. As I always say on the way out the door, rate and review the podcast if you can. We always appreciate that very much. Helps other Browns fans like yourself find the pod when they search that in their Spotify or Apple podcast selections. So again, thanks for doing that. If you haven't done it, if you could do so, we really appreciate it. Check back in with you soon. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Be well. Go Browns.